This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners, David Farhat and Nate Carter. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Guilty Conscience. As always, Nate Carden here with David Farhat, Stefan Victor. Today we're joined by Mike Gaffney of Atlantic Global Risk talking about tax insurance and the impact of the OECD project and my favorite topics, BEPS and DIMPY, on tax insurance and how that market works. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Wonderful to be here. So just to kick it off a little bit, could you tell the audience a little bit about the tax insurance market and your perspective on what impact the OECD initiatives have had on it? Sure. I think... The product tax insurance is basically there to deal with uncertainty, right, in the tax law, where everyone believes that they're taking the correct position, right? They probably have gone out and gotten some advice from quality firms like yourself. And nonetheless, you know, depending on what that level of comfort is, it's not metaphysical certitude. It's not 100% coverage, right? So every year, every year, you know, the tax director and the CFO have their hands shaking as they attest on their Sarbanes-Oxley that their effective tax rate and their books and records are accurate. Nonetheless, even with the should opinion, there is some risk. Uh, as we've seen in court over the years, the IRS often wins cases where the taxpayer has been well advised and they have strong opinions. Nonetheless, that's not metaphysical certitude that we're seeking. The tax insurance product is there effectively as a risk transfer mechanism, right? For a premium, depending on the ultimate position that is being covered, but takes that, whatever you want to say, a should opinion or a more likely than not, whatever it is, for a premium, of course, uh, there's a cost to it. Uh, for that premium, it, it basically shifts the downside liability of a covered tax position from the taxpayer's financial records to the highly rated insurance company. Right, That's sort of what the product does. And going back to my history on, on Wall Street, it reminds me of early days of cross-border derivatives and securities lending, where effectively you're trying to figure out a way to shift risk, where you still obviously have an obligation where you hold one position, you're entering into a second position to offset the risk. And that's effectively what tax insurance is doing. Obviously, you still have your contentious issue with the taxpayer, with the government in question, whether that's the IRS, the CRA, the HMRC. What you're doing is entering into a contract with a second party, uh, an insurance company, through the use of an insurance broker like Atlantic Global Risk. And through that, you're shifting the risk if and when uh, that tax position turns pear-shaped, as they would say in England. That's what the, uh, the product is there to cover. So you're going to transfer risk, you got to price risk. And one of the frequent themes that we have is that it seems like countries around the world are moving apart rather than together in the way they apply the tax rules. No more so than in areas like transfer pricing and, and uh, the ownership of assets and the, and the uh, recognition of risk, particularly after the BEPS project. How is that changing how, how these risks get priced or even what deals you can do? I think what what it's doing is is focusing more on maybe there's always been historic disagreements between tax authorities. I think what the BEPS project has done is elevated that to a policy level where, in my view, looking at it, it looks like a lot of the BEPS program or the BEPS 15 initiatives, and I try to keep them straight by 
retired New York Yankees uh, numbers. So I think that, yeah, the number, the one that was underutilized most was the Babe Ruth one, which you would think that would be the top, but that's the CFC rules, right? And why is that, in my personal view, mainly the targets were U.S. multinationals. It was all about the residual. And you could solve the residual with an adequately policed CFC regime. And I think apparently the U.S. thought they had one. Other jurisdictions may not have agreed because they obviously did not go back and read the 1962 committee reports where in the first version, the House had a version that would basically tax as a category of subpart F certain income from the exploitation of intangible, whatever the hell, in 1962. It hopped over to the Senate. Somehow that fell out. And really, I think the argument in BEPS, the main argument was all about who gets that residual, right? And, and I think the other big arguments, which one was, I think, six, uh, which I guess is Joe Torrey or Roy White, depending what era of the Yankees you, you think about. But th- that's about access to treaties, right? The problem with the BEPS is it overly focused on, from a treaty perspective on whether you could save one level of tax but still have higher level of tax at home uh, and confuse the inbound investment aspect, promoting the inbound investment, which tax treaties have a, a leg in doing, uh, with anything that has to do with a tax savings, and then basically say tax savings are, are themselves some sort of abuse of the rules. So to me, the beneficial ownership, and we have seen tax insurance products to deal with this. So that the shift of, of the BEPS analysis was to what is the you know, substance of, of the, of the, I used to think of substance as being something that's required in a transaction between related parties or unrelated parties. I think what the BEPS program has done is change substance from the transaction itself to the substance that's in that box in your org chart. Gosh, I was about to say, let me, let me interrupt you a little bit. The first thing is, as a Baltimore guy, it makes me really uncomfortable with BEPS and the Yankees. Just yeah. had, to, had, to throw, <laughs> had to throw that out there. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, I will never think of Dempy again without thinking of Yogi Berra. Yes. So this is excellent. Problematic. Eight, nine, ten. Right? Eight, nine, ten, right? You got Yogi, you got Roger Maris, and you got the scooter Phil Rizzuto. I love that cartoon. This is entirely too much Yankee talk for, for, for a Baltimore kid. But kind of going back to that, to your substance point, Mike, yeah. if you could just unpack that a little bit sure. for the listeners to say, sure. kind of going from the substance of the transaction to the substance of that box. If yes. you can kind of uh, yep. just, just describe and unpack that. And I think we, it, within that, we can get to where we're seeing a lot of the disconnect between jurisdictions and where some of the problems come up. Sure, sure. And uh, I was going down the, the little hole of the U.S. active financing exception. And to me, that was my experience, right, is the first time that you need to have substance in a box, right? But since 1998, it's been there saying you need kind of two things in that TFC in order to earn deferral. Right. And, and there's an objective test and a subjective test. You know, it's a substantial activity test and a predominantly engaged test. One test, the objective test, goes to the box on the org chart, the entity. You know, an effectively shorthand way to say if, if that's a regulated entity, a financial services entity in the jurisdiction that it's operating in, you pass that test. That's the objective test. You go get a license, you're good. The second test, and you need to meet this in order to get deferral uh, of, of the income in that box. Is the employees in that entity need to perform the substantial activities that generate the income. And I think that's sort of where the rubber hit the road. I think up to that point, without the substantial activity component, I think there was a view among non-FS people that, hey, this is really great. We can stick a box in low-tax jurisdictions 
and jam all sorts of passive type income into that box. As it turned out, you cannot unless until you have employees sitting in that entity that actually generate the income. And so that, to me, that's, that's why what I saw where the BEPS program is going on this, uh, I was saying, okay, my view, uh, you need to have humans in that box. And fast forward to, to the BEPS, you know, post the 2015 finalization of, of the program, and as it's been rolled out, not just along the OECD, but the European Union picking it up, it seems like a lot of the European jurisdictions are saying, okay, we have it. One of the things we've talked about here is we had BEPS 1.0 just in 2015. Yep. That was not very long ago. We're just getting comfortable with that, and they're already talking about BEPS 2.0, right? And kind of unpacking what you said, it seems like it's hard to kind of pinpoint the policy reasons for some of these changes. How do you kind of evolve around those changes with when you're writing policies, when you're looking at things that go forward and dealing with that kind of risk? Yeah, I think the most important part is deciding what the covered tax position that's insured is and for what period of time and for what amount. And maybe taking, you know, the covered tax position is key. Like in the analysis we just went through, it, it's hold co eligible for article whatever of the tax treaty. That's the legal question. That's probably what they have an opinion according. So in essence, the tax, the policy is covering that. The period it's covering would be, you know, for the year it put in, in place. Normally, a lot of a lot of tax insurance policies in the U.S. cover a seven-year period. However, that's grown out of the fact that a lot of times they're associated with merger and acquisition transactions, where the buyer is inheriting, you know, the tax life of the subsidiary they're purchasing. So the forward-looking BEPS one is a little different. Right? You're going to need an attestation every year. There may be a premium every year based on year-by-year analysis. The thing is, you're going to have on one side of the boat, if you will, it is the taxpayer, the insurance company that accepts the risk. They won't accept it unless they believe it, right? And also, you would think, the financial accounting firm that's attesting to the financial statements of the taxpayer. Right? So people are in the same direction. On the other side of the boat is potentially the adverse tax authority. So I think the idea on a forward-looking policy, and it's a little more nuanced because you generally have to be very specific Actually, you have to be very specific with the cover tax position for any policy. But for a year-by-year policy going forward, what we've seen is sort of you can pay all at once for a period of time. Why would If I was buying it, I said, why would I? <laughs> yeah, It's like I might sell this thing next year, right? And so I think the idea is like the expectation is every year you renew it. Trying to make uh, connections with you know what we've discussed so far and what areas of subjectivity that tax insurance uh, might cover – would it be the subjective portion of the economic substance, I guess, analysis that that would the tax insurance would be especially fitting for? So like, you know, a determination of the significance of employee functions at a specific CFC? I think that would be the, the key. I, I think you'd probably want to cover both, right? Because the cover tax position would probably want to cover both. And to your point, I think you nailed it, Stefan. I mean, the, the, the hard issue is the subjective piece. The objective one is fairly simple, but you, you would hate to have lost your license for a, a nanosecond and then have the insurance company say, well, we're not going to pay. But to answer your question, you're right. For that specific risk, you want to make sure that the attestation of the substantial activity of the employee is met on whatever basis is required in the law. If it's annual, is it quarterly? What is it? And you're basically going to wrap the policy around that provision in order to make sure it's the covered tax position. 
And then going to the other point, which is probably obvious, but but uh, bears restating, is if you're a big taxpayer and you're audited by country X, you probably have more than one issue under audit. You know, maybe this act of financing, maybe 17 other things. Conduct provisions of the policy you know, require having grandkids now, I like to think of it, is, is the minivan approach. The kids are in the car. They're not driving. Maybe they're in the third row of the minivan, but they're in the car. And so they need to be aware, you know, when they say, are we there yet? You know, you, you basically, there's conduct provision throughout the treaty. So generally, speaking as a U.S. person, if you get an IDR, the insurance company should be aware of it. Uh, up front, before the contract's incepted, you will generally agree, right, uh, on, on you know, how far you have to fight this thing. So, you know, I'm listening. I, I'm imagining a tax uh, director out there listening to this, and I hear you say, hey, I can transfer this risk, but, you know, I, first I got to go through uh, uh, an MRI scan of my operations in order to get the thing priced. Then when the audit's going on, I'm going to have somebody chirping over my shoulder. Then I got to worry about whether I've actually defined the tax risk correctly. This all sounds like a big hassle. What are the kinds of risks where, in your experience, like for your multinational listeners out there, both yeah. FS space and non-FS space, what does it make sense to think about pursuing, and was it probably more trouble than it's worth? I think it's it's really for the things that insurance, whether it's tax insurance or, or home insurance is for. It's for the potentially low risk, but a huge, huge, huge downside, right? And we've been talking to a couple of taxpayers. Again, around the same time of BEPS, we had the 2017, you know, uh, Tax Cut and Job Act. And, and, you know, some incredibly complex provisions came in there. And, you know, someone asked, could we get beat covered? And I started like, oh, my God. And that, you know, what's the issue? Every, you know, every, every episode, how, someone has to do this to me, Nate. It, it, I think it's, I think I it's like, a yeah, part oh of no, the it's a, <laughs> We didn't warn you. Don't say beat. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the thing is, well, Initially, uh, that seems too complicated because there's 19,000 factors to get into a daily calculation. If it's still a monthly calculation, just to figure out whether or not the taxpayer is in the 2% bucket or the 3% bucket, depending if they're financial services or not. And it's like, okay, yeah, like forget about it. That that that, that would be so difficult to ensure. It's a difficult calculation. Like, yeah. What are you really worried about? We've had discussions that it boils down to. There may be the way the business is structured. There's really one significant type of payment, or maybe it's not a payment. Maybe it's an allocation of revenue. Yeah, maybe there's one flow, right, that you have an opinion, right, that's a very high level. Nonetheless, if you if that's wrong, you pull that thread out, you know, all of a sudden, you're not under the 2 or 3% threshold anymore. All of a sudden, you're a beat taxpayer, right? And because you had a should opinion, Going back, jumping over to ASC 740, you know, you haven't felt the need to put up any financial statement reserve. So you haven't self-insured any amount. Or maybe you've self-insured for some amount that you'd be willing to settle on, which, again, is probably a de minimis amount because you don't feel like you're subject to the beat at all. So why would you reserve? So to me, it's like, and, you know, obviously it's, it's 2022 now. So you're four or five years into this calculation. And if every year, you know, the downside of that is make up a number, losing 100 million. Now you're into half a billion. Could you get that effectively, not the 9,000 calculations could go into your daily beat calc uh, that distills into an annual beat calc? Uh, can you get that one issue that is really the critical issue insured? And I think the answer to that is yes. 
to go up a level on that, yeah. Mike, and I, I, yeah, sure. I, I actually appreciate you using the beat example, su surprisingly. Um, we're seeing a lot of new taxes that look and act kind of like the beat, right? They yeah. have the, you know, the DPT, DST, all of these taxes. And we've kind of talked about the impact for tax practitioners and the impact for um, taxpayers and, and, and um, multinationals out there. What does all this change look like for your industry, for, for, the, for the tax insurance market? How are you guys dealing with that? Because I like how you kind of walk through the beat and said, well, we may not insure the entire, the, for beat, because there's so many different factors in there, but we may be able to pick out one thing and look at that. So how has that impacted kind of what you guys do and, and, and your outlook into the future? What we're finding is usually it's a couple of year lag. So the discussions we had, maybe it was early 2020, 2020 late, about items that we could potentially cover. And we're not really hitting the mark. We find six months later, nine months later, a year later, we get a call back and say, hey, you mentioned that tax insurance might be able to cover XYZ. We're realizing now that we might have that issue. And a lot of times, like, well, why are you having the issue now? Because that gets into the, what's your motivation to get the insurance? Is the house already on fire? You know, oh, the bed was on fire when I got into it. So it wasn't my fault. The insurance company will want to understand the motivation. And that goes into, I think, a lot of what we we're discussing earlier about, you know, the, the amount of information they're going to want to see in order to place a policy. But I think it's sort of like, to me, what I try to do is stay obviously involved in what's going on. And then figure out, is it insurable or not? Which will bring us back to, I think, transfer pricing, uh, whatever we want to go there. I think transfer pricing, to me, a lot of it relates to the residual, right? The CFC rules didn't capture it. Then the residual is up for grabs, so to speak. And to me, what we've seen, there has been transfer pricing tax insurance policies. A lot of them, at least to my knowledge, the ones I've seen, have been basically based on, which I was like, really? People care about that? Uh, yes. Intercompany lending, right? Question one is actually, a, is it actually a debt instrument? And then secondly, it is the interest rate charge an arm's length rate. And so it's like, to me, it's not the big dollars. It's not the residual. We're, we're talking about the residual. And I think you made a great point there, kind yeah. of ensuring around that. And it seems like everything we read about with, you know, BEPS 2.0 and all of these kind of um, unilateral measures are tax authorities trying to go after that residual. And I think you'll have some folks argue that maybe people aren't being as principled. Well, uh, I think we had um, Mike McDonald come on and talk about kind of the arm's length yeah. standard. Say, are we sticking to the arm's length standard when we're doing that, right? Maybe we're, we're moving away from that. So as all of these folks try to get at that residual and come up with new techniques to get at that residual and some, some unpredictable techniques to get after that residual, how do you guys manage that? How do you um, ensure around that? Because if you go back to what you said, you're looking at a prod, uh, policy seven years down the line, and you've got all of this evolution. There's always a new intangible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One intangible you're creating is entering into a tax insurance contract, which I think is an intangible for 263 Cafe, which may be advertisable over the seven years, but we'll put that aside. The, uh, yeah, to, to, to me, it's sort of normally the insurance contract, it's, it's for an existing tax risk that you have, right? And because it's coming out of the M&A space mainly, it's a seven-year policy for that, you know, when you have it, so to speak. And then you kind of say, okay, it's a claims-made policy, which means it doesn't expire in seven years, but you have to make the claim within the seven years. 
you have to nail down what the covered tax position is, right, for that period of time. Changes in tax law are excluded from tax insurance policy. So I think if there's it's in the statute and you've got it, maybe the tax fair review, that's kind of like a change of interpretation. You have to go through the process of a court proceeding. And I think that's part of the conduct, generally conduct rules for tax policy. We're dealing with a couple of taxpayers that, you know, the G in their ESG policy is like, yeah, we would prefer not to go to court. And this gets into that's not traditional because normally tax insurance with M&A and you're selling a box in your chart and the new person's buying it. No one knows really anything. Everyone's gone. What we're seeing more is we can, going back to the put option analysis for insurance contract, you can strike a put and call because effectively if you have a tax position that you're not overly comfortable with already and you've got some reserve set up under ASG 740, let's say you're reserving 20% of it, right? Um, you know, and you're willing to, you know, wrestle around with the IRS or tax authority, A, B, or C. And, you know, if you sell at 40, you'd still kind of say, oh, I don't want to go to court. I'll settle in the 40. Yeah, we have discussions with, with several clients. So you only want the insurance to kick in at 40 and above. Do you want to do it pari passu? Yeah, how do you want to do it? Or, or is there a pain level at what point you would definitely go to court? And if that pain level is 65, then you, don't, you only need to insure $1.66 and up. The premium on that's probably going to be the same because the tax issue you're insuring is the same. So the rate is the same, but the quantitude, yeah, the, the magnitude of the of the premium in pure dollar terms is much less. The question we're dancing around here a lot yeah. is the financial statement yeah. question. Oh, yeah. as, as we move on through this, help people that are listening yeah. who maybe don't have tax insurance but are thinking about it. What's sort of the income state and balance sheet geography of this, right? I get what yeah, it means yeah. to reserve for a tax position, yeah. but what happens if I insure it away? Uh, boy, I've heard people say, oh, you can enter tax insurance and eliminate your reserve. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Uh, I don't want to blame Fredonia again. Is that Fredonian gap? I, I, I kind of look at it as you've got a potential liability to the IRS. Just we'll leave the CRA and the rest of them out of it. And I entered the contract uh, at, at a different point in time with a third party where they're, they're going to pay me potentially if this other thing goes pear-shaped. And I, I think there's a very, very narrow area. Yeah, this is like the, I think the general rule is, yeah, there's no real offset when you enter into the contract. We'll get back to when the payoff occurs, what happens. But I think in the M&A context, if the tax insurance is part of the transaction. There's a very narrow, and it's not ASC 740, I think it's the business combination, the ASC 405, blah, 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 that if it's a condition of the sale, you can basically net it together, so to speak. Like maybe what I'll do is I'll go up back after we clean this up a bit. But I think that's, it's a very narrow subset. So there's the point of, you know, the, the new CFO and new head of tax, that's not really available to them. Or multinationals looking to, use the policy as a risk mitigant, right, for an existing position, that's not really available. It's, it's sort of a narrow little alley having nothing to do with ASC 740 tax or necessarily insurance. It's this, this narrow part of the business combination. And because you know, then you're buying something that has the tax insurance linked to this tax issue. And that, that, I think it's a very narrow subset. The general rule is like, hey, I, you owe the IRS potentially 100 here. You're going to pay company X 
five. You know, so the premium keeps going up, and he's like, I want to make sure. It started at <laughs> two. Now, I'm, I'm noticing. Up to yeah. <laughs> I'm up to five. But yeah, we're, we're up to DiMaggio. We're trying to get to Mickey Mantle. It's, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we're uh, so 5%. And, and, and you know, basically, you say, okay, what do you do there? Right? My view, and toying with writing a long article on this, but it, you bought something. You effectively acquired, if it wasn't called an insurance contract, economically looks like a put, put option. And, and yeah, your premium's five, right? And if things flip, right, you put that to the insurance company and you get 100. The IRS doesn't get any of that, right? It, to me, it's like you still have an obligation to pay the government. And then you have this other thing over here. On day one, it seemed like, uh, to me, the question is, is it deductible here one? I'm like, I don't think so. Arthur Miller dance studio and all that stuff. Yeah, you got something that you have seven years. Is it intangible? I would think it's an intangible. It's a contract. And you sit there like, okay, so I can amortize it over 15 years. Well, it's only a seven year contract. I, I, I would think you probably amortize it over seven. That's my own sort of, you know, analysis, uh, which for better or worse coincides with generally how an insurance company would pick the premium up. Not that you need symmetry in the world, mm-hmm. but isn't that lovely? You know, it kind of works like that. If and when you're five, you're losing court, you say, okay, great. In the quarter, you basically, you owe the IRS money. It would be great to confirm because you, you've been playing ball with the insurance company. They're in the minivan, all that good stuff. They're aware of everything. And in the same quarter, right, this thing you paid five for in year one, way back, 5%, uh, still at five, uh, you know, it, it all of a sudden, you have an insurance asset, right? that leaps and expands and goes to a hundred. Magically in that quarter, you have a, you know, basically you're able to use that hundred you've created uh, to offset the liability you have to the IRS. So it's kind of nice. That's to me how it works. I don't think you can, yeah. I know there's people saying you can, yeah, I've heard this. I'm like, I don't think so. You know, it's, I mean, I, I, I did pass the CPA exam in 1982. So I think my, my official, that CPA at this point stands for can't pass again, which I'm sure. But I don't think the fundamentals have changed that much, right? You, you, paid, you paid a nickel. It's hard to figure out how you can mm-hmm. eliminate a reserve that might be 25, right? It's like, that'd be great. I would love it. All those anthropocentric changers out there that we're hoping they get rid of the reserves, they're now really disappointing. So <laughs> the way it goes, though. So, Mike, as we're coming into time, um, believe it or not, sure. time flies when you're having fun. Any, any final thoughts um, before we, we wrap up this one? I, let's see. I, I think just it's something to me, the way I think of the product, right? It, it's, it's a tool for advisors to have and for taxpayers to know about, right? I think we're doing a lot of, a lot of the last couple of years, of, you know, just awareness, like, and the model of, of our, our firm and the other brokers is, you know, our business model, we don't get paid until the policy incepts. So I probably spend a lot of my time, way more than half, between talking to people what the what the product could do versus, hey, we have a live risk. And then we'll, our process is we will hear the risk. We will generally, within a week, 10 days, come back with a non-binding indication, right? So the classic, tell us a little bit about the risk. You've got a shoot opinion from X. We'll go talk to the underwriters, 20-odd underwriters. 10 might be, they don't want... They don't want that kind of risk. So you're down to 10. The other 10 is saying, well, if what you're telling me is correct, right, the amount is this, they have a should opinion from, from XYZ. We've seen this risk before. 
you know, our pricing, depending when we get the underwriting, is a range. It's three to four percent. It's four to four point five. Then we can give a report to the client to hey, we talked to 20 clients. Here's your non-binding indication report. We got quotes from six of the 10, 10 demurred, the other 10. We would say exclude these four because they have exclusions that are critical, right? We'll, we'll give them our recommendation, right? At the end, we'll explain which one. Now, do you want to go through underwriting or not? And at that point, that's the first time the client writes a check. And then they go through underwriting. And if it finally binds, then they write the big policy check, right? For the, was it up to 7% by now? I forget. 5%, 4%, whatever, whatever it is. And then, then the policy incepts, you know, when everyone agrees and off they go. You know, everyone sits there and waits for the seven years or whatever term it is to expire. And you figure out whether you've got to, whether you have to the put option put to the insurance uh, company or whether or not, you know, in hindsight, oh, I wasted my 5%, right? Or so, yeah. Hey, look, I, 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 I have life insurance. I didn't die last year. I'm not complaining about it. It wasn't a waste. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. look, you, you, had me in, you, you had me wanting your job until I heard you don't get paid until the policy's in place. But it's still a fascinating market. Thanks. Thanks for talking to us about it. And a minute, it warms off, it warms off dementia. That's my, that's my main plan. <laughs> As always, Coming up at age sixty-three, you got to keep going. You got to keep, got to keep thinking. As okay. always, a pleasure, Mike. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, yes. We'll see you soon. Yes. Okay. Thank, Take care. Thanks for Cheers. coming on. This has been Guilty Conscience. You got it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 